0: Hello and welcome to the Righteous Remnant Podcast. If you'd like to support our ministry or find out more about us, you can do so at therighteousremnant.org. All right, welcome to the Righteous Remnant Podcast. This week we are going to talk about um, the church. All right. And, you know, when I recommend churches to people, I'm usually looking for about four or five different things. There's, there are four or five different things that I look for when I'm looking for a church. And, um, this is going to be an exhaustive list obviously, but this is going to be kind of the major things that I'm looking for. Okay. I look for a love for the presence of God. That's number one. Okay. Is there a love for the presence of God in the culture of the church? Number two, um, is the culture of the church healthy? All right. Meaning it's not controlling. The leaders are not controlling. There is not a culture of strong religiousness, um, fakeness being non genuine, non sincere, right? A lot of church cultures get overly fake, Right. It's like people are pretending um, to be holy and righteous, but it's not authentic. Right. And number three, it's not apathetic. Right. There's, there's actually passion in the church. People are hungry to know God that that's the culture of the church. Okay. So that to me, all kind of fits under this category of being healthy. Okay. Number three, Um, the church is anti-Marxist. It can discern that Marxism and humanism um, are things, are strong ideological evils in the culture and they're actively fighting against it. Okay? And number four, they have a serious concern for theology and for the Bible. They have a high view of Scripture. Um, When they're teaching from the Bible, they're not just trying to, you know, justify their own, they're not using passages just to justify their own opinions, but they're, they're Trying to be serious with the text. There's a real sense where they, you can tell the, the leaders, the people who are preaching, are seriously studying the text. They're trying to make sense of it. They're trying to, you know, be honest with the scriptures. Okay. So those are four of the things that I really look for when I'm looking for like what makes a great church. So what I want to do is I want to take a series, have a series here where we kind of delve into why. Finding these four things at the same church or ministry is actually really difficult, okay? Um, This week, I want to talk about um, a love for the presence, okay? Why is it that it is so hard um, to find a love for the presence in many different churches, okay? And then I want to talk about steps that we can take to grow this particular strength in our home church, Okay, so first of all, um, you know, I think when we're talking about churches that do not have a love for the presence, generally speaking, we're talking about non-charismatic churches. Okay, now, you know, every church is unique, but if we're just talking about general trends, we're talking about more, you know, cessationist churches, churches that reject um, the gifts of the Spirit, oftentimes tend to not be, not have a strong sense of the presence of God, um, and that's, there's a number of different reasons for that, but one of the big ones that I see is because there's no theology for it, okay, and I'm gonna quote, um, John MacArthur here. John MacArthur is obviously, um, one of the strongest, you know, cessationist voices and teachers in the body of Christ, and, you know, before I quote what he says here, I, I do want to be clear here, I do consider John MacArthur a brother in the Lord, okay, I do consider him, um, to have, uh, Several very important strengths for the body of Christ. Like when we, later on in the series, when we get into concern for theology in the Bible, this is John MacArthur's greatest strength, that he's very concerned about being consistent with the Bible. Um, You see that he has a very high view of Scripture. That's his strength. But this uh, issue of the presence of God, I would consider one of his major weaknesses, okay? And this is um, a quote from him in... I believe it's a book called The Promise of the Holy Spirit, part two. I I got the quote from online. But he says this, Christian mysticism through the Middle Ages and even until now has always sought to find God in some experience, some feeling, some emotion, some means by which the sense's imminence is present. This has become a popular notion in evangelical churches, that there are ways in which you can feel God, in which you can sense God's presence. Perhaps the most popular one is music. If you get the music right, um, if you get the right music, the music is sort of musically seductive enough and emotionally energized enough, people will say, I just feel the presence of God. Don't you feel the presence of God? Well, of course, that is absolute nonsense. You can't feel the presence of God. You don't have any mechanism to feel the presence of God. I've never felt the presence of God. I don't even know what that means. But I do know this, he's here. And more than that, he not only inhabits the praise of his people, is joined to his people in union all the time, so that the church itself literally is in constant communion with God collectively. It's not only true that where two or three are gathered, he is in the midst, but this is true. And listen, the Trinity lives in every Christian. The Trinity, the three in one in every Christian, there isn't some experience that you can have that takes you into some communion with God that you otherwise don't have. There isn't some musical formula that can induce some kind of relationship with that, with God that without the music can't happen. There certainly isn't a drug that's going to do anything other than alter your mind and make you think something's happening that's not. Every believer is in a constant, unending, eternal communion with the Trinity. And I'm not talking about when you come here. I'm talking about when you leave here. I'm talking about when you're all by yourself and you're driving along in your car alone. You're in the presence of the Trinity Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, full and complete complete communion. I think this is somehow lost on many evangelicals. There's so many foolish ideas to correct in the church, but this is a big one. The idea that somehow this notion of feeling God or sensing God or communing with God has to be induced by some mechanical mean foolish. Okay. So that's the quote from John MacArthur, and I think that provides a pretty good sense of where he's coming from. Okay, and what he's doing here is he's emphasizing the omniscience of God, or excuse me, the omnipresence of God. Okay, so sorry, omniscience means the how God is all knowing. Omnipresence is the characteristic of God that describes how He's everywhere. Okay, and we get some verses about this right in the Psalms that talks about if I go to the highest of heavens, You are there. If I go to, if I descend to the depths, You are there. Right, this idea that He's everywhere, that God. It's not like he can't hear you, you know, if you're in Mexico, right? And he can hear you if you're in California, right? He's, he's everywhere, okay? And he can hear you everywhere. And there is an important truth to that, okay? So there is an important truth. But the there's also another truth in Scripture where there's a sense where he is more in one place than another, okay? There's also a sense in Scripture where he's more in one place than another. And really, that's the, this is indisputable. Okay, This is not, you know, I'm not making something up that's not in the scriptures. It's very obviously in the scriptures, This sense that God is more in one place than he is in another. So for example, um, you know, God tells Moses, um, you guys go on without me, (laughs) right? He says, I will not go with you, right? Because if I go with you, I'll destroy you, right? He tells this to Moses when they're wandering through the wilderness because they keep upsetting him. And so there's a sense in which he's saying you go, you're going to go on without me, and then this is the place where Moses intercedes and says, you know, no, don't, you have to come with us, right? Or, or how will we be we be any different than any other peoples, you know, on the face of the earth? And Moses intercedes, and this is, you know, there's clearly a sense in which God is with them, or He's not with them, in a way you know, that is somewhat mysterious because, again, we believe he's omnipresent, he's everywhere, but there is clearly a sense in which he can be more in one place than in another, all right? And that's just one example. There's lots of examples. The burning bush is obviously a clear example. In fact, whenever you see God manifest um, himself fully in the Bible, there's a sense in which the ground becomes holy, right? So obviously that happens at the burning bush, where God is in the bush, And because of that, Moses is told to take the shoes from his feet. Okay, that's going to repeat when, um, you know, the angel of the Lord, which is pretty clearly also God in some sense. You know, uh, many Christians um, will say that this is Jesus, this is you know, theophany, it's a—it's an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament, okay? And um, when the angel of the Lord appears to Joshua, he says, take the, your feet from off your sandals, because this is holy ground, right? And you see this again and again, this idea that God can be more in one place than in another. Obviously, when Solomon dedicates the temple, it says, you know, the glory of the Lord came in like a cloud, right? And it was so thick, the glory of the Lord was so thick that the, the priest could no longer minister and all this kind of stuff. So, This is a very, very biblical concept, okay? This is a very, very biblical concept. And in fact, this concept of the Shekinah often, not all the time, but often correlates with musical worship, okay? Like, you're going to see this, and, and and the temple is the clearest example, all right, where there's a sense of being at the temple, and, you know, if you're familiar with the temple, there was different levels of his presence, something like that, and so the inner chamber of the temple is called the Holy of Holies, all right, and, you know, famously, You know the high priest could only enter the holy holies, you know, once a year to make sacrifice on behalf of the entire nation. But you know, and to be honest, I'm I'm not sure I haven't verified this, but I've heard several sermons about how you know they had to tie, um, you know, some kind of rope around the high priest's leg in case he died in there, right? And because there's a sense in which this is a very holy place, not anyone can come in, and if you mishandle this, right, um, then you can be struck dead. And obviously, we see that exact same thing with the ark right, Um. when David is carrying the ark in, right, somebody um touches the ark, right, and, and he's struck down and he's killed. And again, it's this idea of the holiness of God, the presence of God is so manifest in this place that to not treat it correctly, right, or to sin in what otherwise would be a way that would be forgivable, permissible, but because you're in the presence of God, you cannot do this, right? And we see this idea again um, with Isaiah. When Isaiah goes to the throne room, he has this vision where he goes to the throne room of God, and um, you know, they have to purge his sin with a coal, Right, because he's in the presence of God, he's in the very throne room of God, because God is in some sense more in this place than he is in another place. So in another place, he would not need to purge his sin in order to you know, live there, but now because he's in the very throne room of God, he's got to have his sins purged. That's the basic idea that it is communicating there. Again, this is a, a strong idea, but getting back to the, the, the correlation with the presence of God in music, you see this several times in the temple, most notably, right, that there's the the temple is filled with musicians ministering to the Lord that's by design, right? David designs this this form where you know where the the ark goes, there is there are these priests ministering to the Lord with music, right? We see that when he's bringing the ark into Jerusalem. We see this again and again, um, Elijah, for example, Elisha, in second Kings three. Right, It says this, Elijah says, surely as the Lord Almighty lives whom I serve, if I didn't have respect for the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, I would not pay any attention to you, but now bring me a harpist. And while the harpist was playing, the hand of the Lord came on Elijah, and he said, this is what the Lord says, I will fill this valley with pools of water. Okay, so what happens is Elisha calls for a musician to come and play, and then the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him okay? And, you know, this is very common in in modern charismatic, you know, worship circles. We understand that there's this thing that when um, the music gives us something of an ability to enter into the presence of the Lord more easily, okay? And all that I'm getting at is that uh, that does also appear to be the case in the Bible, all right? There's a reason why musical worship often accompanies the meetings of the Lord, right? Or, or us, us, coming into the presence of the Lord is often intertwined with musical worship. It's not like this is a made-up thing. It's not like this is, you know, John MacArthur calls this Christian mysticism as though this is something that's wholly unbiblical. But in fact, there's so many examples of this type of thing in the Bible. Um, And we not only see this in the Bible, but we see this in the everyday experience of Christians, okay? And um. Pretty clearly, John MacArthur does not. Right? He says, I've never felt the presence of the Lord. All right, just to be clear, in the Bible, people feel the presence of the Lord, right? People feel the presence of the Lord in the Bible. Like, whenever the angel of the Lord shows up to people, you know, this great fear comes upon them, right? Um, you know, they fall down as though they are dead, right? Like, there's the sense in which, the, there's clearly a sense in which people are feeling things, right? The Psalms talk about the presence of the Lord, you know, all the time. Right Or seeing the face of God, the Shekinah, All right, this was a, a, a well understood concept in rabbinic Judaism. The, um, the rabbis had, a, con- had a, a term for this the Shekinah, the you know the, the weight of the glory, right And um, you know, there's lots of different psalms. Psalm 16 says, "You make known to me the path of life. in your presence, there's fullness of joy, and at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore." Right? Psalm 27, you have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. This is this is part of that same concept of seeking the face of God. There's a sense in which you're coming into the presence of the Lord. Okay. Um, Psalm 145, the Lord is near to all who call on him, he to all who call on him in truth. Right? He's near to them in a way that he is not to other people. All right, we're seeing. Um, all these different things. Psalm 25 says, lead me in your truth and teach me for you the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions according to your steadfast love. Remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore you instruct sinners in the way he leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way, right? So this idea of being close to God and having God personally guiding you in your life right this is a very popular concept in psalms it's all about the near being near to god okay these are all biblical concepts and if you know the psalms these are songs (laughs) these are songs right because much of the heart of the singer the heart of the worshiper is to be near to god right god i want to be near to you and you see that reflected in a lot of musical worship okay all right so before i go any farther i do want to acknowledge Some of what John MacArthur and other leaders in the body of Christ um, are pointing out here, okay? Meaning there is something true about what they're saying. And that's that just because we feel like God's here does not necessarily mean that he's here, all right? And that's because we're getting into spiritual senses, Spiritual senses, okay? And you know what I generally teach people is that we have physical senses and we have spiritual senses. All right, so with our physical senses, obviously we can see, we can hear, we can taste, we can touch, all right? And that's how we know that we're perceiving things, all right, through these senses. But there are also spiritual senses, okay? And spiritual senses are really important, all right? Like we have to develop our spiritual senses. This is, in fact, what things like prophecy are all about, okay, like that you're discerning, is this feeling that I have, we can just call it a feeling, but there's a whole suite of spiritual senses that go into that feeling, right? And is this is what I'm feeling from the Lord or not? Is it from a demon? Is it from an angel? Is it just from myself, right? John MacArthur and other leaders who are like him, they basically throw out most of that kind of stuff, and they they just assume that everything is You know, stuff that you're feeling from your own feelings, your your, your own chemical, you know, things that are going on in your body and whatnot, you know, your own imaginations and, and all this kind of stuff. But the scriptures point to a reality of a spiritual reality, that there's a separate dimension, a separate realm that we can actually sense okay and that's the part that you know he basically brushes off as though that's not important and that's the part that generally speaking the charismatic church we pay a lot of attention to okay and i i want to acknowledge but he can be right okay he can be right that many charismatics and just many Christians in general will say oh i heard this from the lord and it might not be the lord right oh i feel the presence of god and it might not be the presence of god okay so there can be truth to that but I don't think we should throw the baby out with the bathwater just because we can, you know, discern wrongly. We can get it wrong sometimes, okay? We can hear imperfectly, And, you know, the scriptures do tell us this. It says, all prophecy must be tested, right? Test all prophecies. That is a command from the New Testament to all Christians. Why would we need to test prophecies? Because our feelings are imperfect on this. And, And it's similar to the way that our sight, can be imperfect, what we hear can be imperfect, what we process in our brain, the way we interpret words can be imperfect. There's a need to test these things because we are imperfect beings, okay? And so just because we're imperfect beings doesn't mean right that none of the impressions, none of the feelings that we get are true, okay? So again, there's lots of different verses that we can use to cover this. I like to use um, Acts 16. Acts 16 is a very interesting story, all right? And in this story, it's Paul it is, you know, and Silas are traveling, and they come upon a girl who um, starts to feel things. All right? So I'm just going to read the story from Acts uh, 16. This is verse 16. It says this, Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days, and finally Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And At that moment, the spirit left her. Okay. Fascinating story okay? Because the Bible seems to be strongly implying that this spirit was not a clean spirit. It seemed like it was an unclean spirit or like a demon or something like that, okay? Um, But she had utilized the spirit to be able to to actually foretell the future in a way that made her money in some sense, okay? Now, we don't know for sure if she was super accurate or not, but they had a business that was operating through the impressions and feelings that this young female slave girl had Um, but more importantly what we see is that when Paul and Silas come she accurately discerns through the spirit that these are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved meaning what she is essentially prophesying here is a hundred percent (laughs) correct right she is prophesying something that is a hundred percent correct and yet Paul is is bothered by this there's something that is off about this he senses this is not the holy spirit that is giving the girl these words that this is some other spirit even though the words are technically true it bothered him okay and so he cast the spirit out of the girl Okay, so the strong implication here, again, is that this is not, he's not casting the Holy Spirit out of the scroll, right? That this is some kind of unclean spirit. My question is always, how did, he, how did Paul discern this? Okay, because the way that many teachers in the body of Christ that are similar to John MacArthur, the way they're going to they're say is, hey, we have to test everything by the scriptures. All right, and I would 100% agree with that. Okay, the, where I would differ is that the scriptures are only one of the ways that we test something. Okay, the scriptures are one of the ways that we test something, but you also need to test it by your spiritual senses, all right, by your discernment, and the two are not the same thing, and because how would John MacArthur discern whether this spirit was from God or not? Because everything the spirit is saying is biblical, it's correct, all right, it's, it's you know, appropriate, okay? I would guess that if John MacArthur were living in this time, he'd be like, this girl's prophesying, Right, this girl is prophesying, and she's right on. Like, how do you discern that this is not from the Lord? How do you discern the spirit is not from the Lord? Okay, and um, I think the scriptures warn us about this very thing in other places. Right, Jesus says, right, that you know the enemy comes as an angel of light. Right, so for example, when Satan is tempting Jesus in the wilderness, right, he's using scripture. He's using Scripture, and that's why scrip- discerning by Scripture alone is not enough, all right? Discerning by Scripture alone is not enough because guess what? The enemy can be very good at using Scripture. He knows the Scripture very, very well, probably better than we do in many ways, okay? And so if, if, if our discernment is just, is it biblical, right, I think that we can be led astray, all right? Now, to be fair, we can also be led astray by our feelings and our, dis- and our discernment for sure, all that I'm saying is that the Bible says that we need both of these things, right, to best discern and tell, you know, what's from God and what's not, all right? And so that's really all I'm going to say on, on this issue of, you know, isn't God everywhere? The answer is, yes, he is, but according to the Bible and our practice, we understand that God can be more in one place than another, and churches should be eagerly desiring to have the presence of God in their services. Okay, it bothers me when Christian leaders do not have a strong desire for the presence of God, because what that tells me is that they also don't have a strong desire for the presence of God in their own lives, right? If they long for it in their own lives, of course they're going to long for it in a corporate worship service as well, all right? Now, I want to be gracious here because for me, you know, I'm, I am a worship leader, I am a musician, and so I think that it's easier for me to discern the presence of God or to feel the presence of the Lord strongly than it is for other people like John MacArthur, okay? Like John MacArthur's pretty obviously a teacher, like that's his main thing, and he doesn't seem to be very spiritually sensitive, so I want to, you know, show him some grace in this and say, hey, maybe that, that's not his primary area of gifting, Almost certainly it's not. Um, But it's a problem, you know, when he is criticizing those who that is area of gifting, right? When he's, you know, taking worship leaders like Kim Walker and saying how, you know, they're demonic and all this kind of stuff. I, I, I think that's so problematic. It's so divisive right and and it's such a problem because the presence of god is actually so important for us to have in our corporate services okay without being able to discern things of the spirit of god what we start to naturally do is rely on on discernment by outward appearance the only way that we can discern is by the way that things look okay And that is a formula for becoming legalistic, okay? It's a formula for becoming religious and legalistic. And I think that's exactly what you see in a lot of communities where they reject the presence of God, they don't seek after it, where they reject the gifts of the Spirit, where they reject prophecy. I think they tend to become very religious and legalistic. Now, I also want to be clear here that a, there can be a good amount of religiousness and legalism in charismatic churches as well, meaning judging by outward appearances, right? Look, just because somebody raises their hands in worship, that doesn't mean anything, okay? It can mean something, it can be um, an expression of genuine, <clears throat> excuse me, of genuine and authentic worship coming from their hearts, but not necessarily, right? The reality is lots of people will lift their hands to appear holy or righteous to people around them, okay? And that type of temptation, that type of, you know, culture where we honor people based on what they do in, in, in the outward appearance, but we can't discern what's going on in their hearts. We can't discern authentic or genuine faith. That naturally breeds a type of legalism that is so destructive to the church. I think, you know, <clears throat> religious legalism is one of the most destructive forces in the body of christ and it's the thing that we all have to be alert against right because we're all susceptible to it okay we're all susceptible to it what it is it's a kind of false discernment right? it's a false discernment it's where we start to judge you know on things that are not are not proper things to judge right and it, and this is very common and it, and it leads to people being really fake Okay, which is, you know, one of the things that I, I, I get into, you know, I'm going to get more into in another um, lecture on this series. But it, in many church cultures, man, it's there's so much, um, there's so much fakery, right? There's so many people that um, are doing things so that they'll be accepted by the people around them. And then if people around them accept them, especially the leaders, the leaders accept people because they're outwardly being holy and religious, but they can't discern that it's not mature, right? Then what happens is you breed this culture of religious legalism, and, um, and it makes your church really fake, you know, it, like people are not authentic, not sincere, right? And, um, and it, it, it becomes really unhealthy, okay? And um, I think that the, these things can go hand in hand right? When we're talking about if we don't honor the presence of the Lord, I think we become more susceptible to that type of legalism, okay? So now I want to move on to, okay, how do we get more of the presence of the Lord in our church or in our prayer meeting or in our service, whatever it might be? How do I get more of the presence of the Lord, okay? And I just want to, as clear as I can, say this. The key, all right, the number one thing that I would advise any leader to do, if they want more of the presence of the Lord in their services, is you have to have a culture that is focused on ministering to the Lord first rather than ministering to people first. Okay? That is the number one thing that you can do. Okay? One of the things that I always teach is when we gather for Sunday service, the primary reason that we gather is to minister to God, meaning it's God. God enjoys, takes delight in our worship That's why we come to do it, all right? We don't come primarily to get something from God. We don't come primarily to help people, okay? Those are also important reasons, but those are secondary reasons. That's not the primary reason. And the great temptation of the church is to make those things the primary reasons about why we come to church, why we gather, why we do corporate worship. When people become the main thing at the church what you do is you lose the presence of God, you lose the power of God, you lose the anointing, you lose God showing up in your services, generally speaking, okay? So the way to get it is to refocus and say, hey, the purpose of why we're gathering is firstly to minister to the Lord, okay? Why are we coming here today? Because God loves our worship, right? He loves worship. He delights in it. It brings him pleasure and joy. And because of that, I'm going to come and I'm going to worship him, right? And minister to him, all right? And I know if I do that, God will then bless me, right? This is one of the principles of the kingdom. You can't really out God, okay? When we present ourselves as a servant to the Lord, all right, he very naturally pours out blessing back on us, all right? But if we come with the mentality of, I need to get something from God here. If that's our primary purpose, then we're going to miss the presence. Okay, we're going to start to miss out on the presence. And especially when leaders have that mentality, when leaders are constantly thinking, okay, how can we minister to people? How can we get more people to come? How can we, you know, make our service more, you know, um, how can we draw more people? That's where you start to lose the presence of the Lord. You will lose all that stuff, okay, if that's your focus and And that's my concern. When I go to many churches, you can tell that is the focus. The focus is people. all right? Um, that's number one. that's got to become your culture. Okay. Number two is very similar. You need worship leaders that love the presence of the Lord. okay? You need worship leaders. Now, one of the big problems is if you have worship leaders that love the presence of the Lord, but you have pastors that are over them in authority that don't love the presence of the Lord. It it's it's not gonna work long term, generally speaking. Okay, because the leaders will shut them down. All right. Like one of the things that I really appreciate about like um like Bill Johnson, right? I've I've seen him a couple times where you know the worship is going well, like the presence of the Lord is really there, and he can just sense like we just gotta keep this going. And like, I don't need to speak today, you know? The sermon is secondary right? It's ministering to him that's primary. And sometimes you can just sense that in worship, whereas just the worship is so powerful. And it's like, you can't shut down the worship, right? Do not shut down the worship for the sake of your message. The way a lot of pastors think about the worship is that it's preparing people's hearts for the message. And I think that is 100% backwards, okay? It's totally backwards. No, 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 no. We come for the worship. The worship is the main reason why we come okay, to minister to the Lord and to bless his heart, to say, thank you, God, for all you've done. You're so good, right? We're going to publicly and corporately honor him, okay? And then we can hear a message, hear teaching, obviously, right? But the teaching is secondary. The teaching is secondary, all right? This is what a lot of pastors don't understand. A lot of ministers don't understand. Their sermon is not that important, okay? The sermon is not that important, all right, I know. Like for many, you know, many of them, they're like, you know, you are blaspheming the word of God. <laughs> they're getting so upset at this type of a message. But look, I'm not saying the word of God is not important. I'm saying your sermon is not that important. And if you can't tell that there's a big difference, there, there's a problem with you. Okay, all right. I know in your sermon you're trying to preach the word of God, but this is part of the problem—the arrogance here. God is not confined to just speak through your sermon. All right. The reality is, God is often speaking to people in the context of corporate worship. All right? Meaning, if you love the presence of the Lord and you minister to the Lord, God will minister to a lot of people himself in a way that you never could through your sermon. All right. And number two, you have to have some humility that as great as your sermon is, it's a mixed bag of blessing. All right. It's partly the Word of God, hopefully, and it's partly your own opinion that's oftentimes wrong. All right? It's partly your own prejudice and bias and bad theology. Look, the way I always put it is, you know, like, let's just take one issue, the issue of, you know, Calvinism, right? This is just one minor doctrinal issue. You realize how many hundreds or thousands of sermons are preached that include, you know, major elements of Calvinism, and how many sermons are preached where major elements include Arminianism or Arminian doctrines, right? Like the opposite of Calvinism, right? That's just on one issue alone. We clearly know they can't both be right, right? So... One group, all that preaching that they're doing on either Calvinism or Arminianism, and obviously I'm an Arminian, so I think the Arminians are right, right? But whichever group is wrong that we're going to find out on Judgment Day, all of that time preaching, that's all bad preaching, right? That's all bad preaching ultimately, okay? Now, I'm not saying it's totally worthless, but I am saying it's not worth as much as we tend to think it is, preachers, all right? And as I say, this is somebody who loves prayer. I love to preach, all right. But we have to have some humility. Okay, our sermons are not that important. They're not. Okay, they're not that important, especially when it's compared to people worshiping God in a way that's genuine and heartfelt. Do you have to understand? God loves genuine, authentic worship. I just I have this conviction. He loves it. It's so important to him. All right. Like when you, when you look at um. You know, some of the most telling passages to me are in Jeremiah. I can't remember the chapters off the top of my head. But when Jeremiah is prophesying to the nation of Israel, he's prophesying how they're adulterers because they worship other gods, right? And and God likens them to prostitutes, right? And he likens himself to the jealous husband, right? The husband who bought... Israel with a price and you know he talks about how Israel was a young virgin or like a young girl right and he and he married her and clothed her and gave her everything and then she turned around and slept with all these other gods right and you could just hear the jealousy in God's voice and and that's because when the Israelites are worshiping these other gods. He's like, no, that's my worship. That's the thing that brings me great pleasure and great delight. That's supposed to be just for me. And you're giving it to all these other gods. And there's a clear sense in which God is hurt by this, right? And, and I say that because to me, it, those passages have moved my heart where I understand that when I worship God, when my heart is truly worshiping the Lord, it brings him great pleasure right? It brings them great pleasure. And we have to understand that's why we gather on Sundays, okay? That's why we gather and we do these corporate worship events together. It's not primarily for people, okay? It's not primarily for people. And the problem is that so many leaders have this mentality, whether it's explicit or not, okay? But everything they do, the way that they fashion the service is how can we draw as many people as possible rather than how can we draw as much of God as possible, okay? And to me, that is one of the key problems in the church, right? Are we fashioning our services around the question of how can we draw as much of God as possible or are we fashioning and designing our services around how how can we draw as many people as possible, Okay. And I'm not necessarily saying that it's wrong to care about people. Okay. I think we should care about people. It just cannot be primary. Primary has to be God. How can we minister your heart together? God. How can we bless you? Right. How can we have more of you? All right. That has to be our primary desire. All right. So, my encouragement to all of you who are leaders in the church is seek after that kind of culture. Seek after that kind of culture, a culture that puts ministering to the Lord first okay, and empower leaders that have that heart, all right, empower worship leaders, find worship leaders that love the presence of the Lord, okay, look, uh, this is what I always say to worship leaders, you know, worship leaders that don't love the presence of the Lord are, in my opinion, a dime a dozen, okay, there's lots of them out there, and to me, I don't care that a worship leader has a really pretty voice, I don't care that they're super good, you know, instrumentally. Like those things are bonuses. Those things are nice if they have the core the core value, the core strength. The core strength is they love the presence of the Lord. Okay, that is what makes a worship leader great. They love the presence of the Lord. Okay, that is the foundation of greatness that can be, you know, um built upon. All right? If they don't love the presence of the Lord, if the only time they worship, the only time they spend time with God is on stage, okay? I'm sorry, they're not a great worship leader, all right? They can be, okay? They can be, but they have to have that value. And the the reason why there's so few worship leaders that love the presence of the Lord is because there's so few pastors and leaders that love the presence of the Lord, all right? If we have more pastors and leaders that love the presence of the Lord, then they'll create cultures that will nurture great worship leaders, all right? And that's really how it is. You can tell because, look— many wor- many ministries and churches have to go out and hire worship leaders because they don't have they're not growing w- great worshipers in their own ministries. All right, if you build a culture where you love the presence of the Lord and you really seek after him and you train people to do that, I promise you, great worship leaders will start to develop in your own congregations. You won't have to go out to find them. They'll be developing in your own group, okay? And um and th- that's why I think every church should be doing this. All right, every church, in my opinion, should be hosting a house of prayer, should be partnering with a house of prayer because you need to get the worship leaders into the presence of the Lord, worshiping the Lord when it's not about primarily about leading people and ministering to people, it's primarily about them ministering to the Lord, right? And obviously we wish every worship leader would have this incredible habit where they just do it at home all the time. They go into their closet and they worship the Lord. That's That's wonderful, that's ideal. We want every worship leader doing that. But a wise leader will also be creating culture in the context of his church, the prayer meetings, all that kind of stuff, where you're developing worship leaders, right, who can minister before the Lord, right, and minister unto the Lord, okay, in those types of contexts, okay? All right. I hope that makes sense. Um, I do, I, I love churches that really value the presence of the Lord, okay? just You, you just tell the ones with anointing on their worship, all right, upper room, phenomenal anointing okay now let me be clear i i think some of the theology right at upper room is a little problematic okay um and that's true also at bethel i disagree with some of their minor theology okay but guess what i disagree with a lot of john MacArthur's minor theology there's a lot of minor theological problems all over the church okay so i'm not that's not a problem and we're going to find out all the problems with my minor theology when we get to heaven okay so there are problems at every church. No ministry is perfect. But what I am saying is when you, when you look around at the different ministries out there, you can tell the ones that really love the presence of the Lord because their worship ministries are great. Okay. Their worship ministry, the worship coming out of it is anointed. It's authentic. It's genuine. It's heartfelt. Okay. And, um, You know, I got to give a lot of credit to Bethel. I think Bethel has done a tremendous job in this regard, right? Upper room, tremendous vineyard, man, the old school vineyard, the old school, um, Hillsongs, man, like the anointing that was on like Darlene, um, I think it's pronounced Czech, right? Um, Man, she's so, the old school Hillsong and Vineyard stuff was so amazing. And man, my desire and my wish, especially when I look at like Hillsong, to me, when you look at the old Hillsong stuff, you can really see a clear love for the presence of the Lord on a lot of those leaders. And then what I think happens, is they became so famous <laughs> and more and more the focus started to shift to people. That's at least how I perceive Hillsong. Now, to be clear, there's, they still have a like, like Brooke Frazier, uh, I think is a phenomenal worship leader. I, when I see her, I really see a love for the presence of the Lord. Okay. But in a lot of their, um, worship leaders, I don't see that same kind of love. Okay. And, um, Some cultures do a better job of nurturing that than others, and to be clear, Hillsong still does it way better than the vast majority of churches that are out there today, okay? so This is one of their areas of strength, all right? Um, I'm just trying to give us a picture of how to discern this, okay? So when we're looking at our own churches, let's fight for the presence of God in our churches. Let's fight for the presence of the Lord. Let's fight, you know, for great prayer meetings where we go after the presence. Let's fight for great worship sets where we go after the presence of the Lord. Let's try to influence our churches to love the presence. All right, hope that makes sense. God bless.